I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wanarua people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. The great thing about a hunter is everyone wants to see everyone do well, you know, because then we're all doing well. So even from when I was like 16, 17, 18, my grandfather and my dad were just hammering these great wines on the table and just making you think about it, making you talk about it. And I think the great thing about the hunter, even today, is, as much as ever, is there's a real sense of, okay, well, we, you need to know the best to, to make the best. This is the Over the Glass podcast. I'm Shante Whale. Tyrrell's Family Winemakers is an Australian household name. Not only have they been making wine for over 160 years, they have also helped pioneer two of Australia's favourite wine varieties. To tell us more, we are joined by the straight shooting Chris Tyrrell. Chris is fifth generation and chief operating officer of Tyrrell's Family Winemakers, which is situated in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining me. Thanks very much. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Total pleasure. Now, I recently heard that your all-time favourite film is the 1988 American dark fantasy film Willow. Is that true? <laughs> I think you might be mistaken with my brother. But, yeah, sure. Oh. We, we, Willow was pretty good. I think that little era there, Willow, Labyrinth, you know, there was plenty going on. The Tyrrell household. It was yeah, the Dark Crystal. Dark Crystal. My brother still talks about Dark Crystal. He loves it. <laughs> it's definitely a cult classic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, maybe I'm a bit more Masters of the Universe, though, if we're talking that era, I think. Oh, wow, really? Now, I didn't see that coming, but uh, I like surprises. <laughs> yeah, good stuff, yeah. Um, no, my uh, the, the Tyrrell family um, video collection was pretty intense. My mum had a uh, pretty serious um, video pirating empire going when we were young. <laughs> so the Tyrrell kids had every video known to man. Now, uh, a lot of us think of Tyrrells as an iconic Australian brand, but for those that, are, that aren't familiar, can you give us a little bit of a run through about the history of Tyrrells? I know it's a lot to cover. Yeah, the story of Tyrrells is, um, is, 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 a, is, a, is a great one and one I'm you know, bloody proud to be a part of. So um, my great, great grandfather, Edward Tyrrell, um, came to Australia to live with his uncle, who was um, the first, first Archbishop of Newcastle. Um, which for those of you that, that don't know where we are, Newcastle is about 50 minutes drive away now, but um, back then would have been a much longer journey. Uh, and around that time, a few years later, um, he, his uncle was always away. So he decided to, um, to, to do something else with, with his life. And uh, it was around that time that the, there were these things called conditional land grants and they were about 300 acres um, and you were allotted uh, a piece of land. So if you think about... Um, that that time in the in the 1850s the the block of land that he got then he was allotted 320 acres and it was one of the last allotments um and that is exactly where i'm sitting now where he where he settled so um pretty pretty amazing to still be sitting here all these years later so part of the condition of 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 that purchase was to take up agriculture and um clear the land and make the land workable and, and all of those things um but we got pretty lucky that there was a, a bit of a connection to, to James Busby and his, um, his father who had a property um, up here. So early on through the, the Hungerford family connection, um, we uh, in theory had pretty good access to some, some good material um, and have, have gone on from there. From, and then, so I'm the youngest of five generations. So second generation comes along and, uh, you know, at the turn of the century and 
the the industry was was booming then. I think uh, you know you look you hear you read stories about export figures and stuff. It was massive, and wine was a and fortified wine were, were a big thing back then. And um, so the, the second generation was was Dan Tyrrell and uh, his brother Avery were the two main ones that worked in the business. Avery looked after the vineyards, um, who was my great grandfather, and then his brother Dad became the winemaker when he was eighteen years old. Um, and did 72 consecutive vintages, uh, which is a pretty amazing feat. So um, at that time, uh, you know, this is the time, you know, there's, there's legends like uh, Morris O'Shea and, and, you know, and Audrey Wilkinson, some of these, these names of, um, you know, these amazing winemakers up here. And Dan Tyrrell was um, probably not as well known as those guys because Tyrrells didn't make any wine under our own label. We sold it all. Um, most of it went to Mount Pleasant. Um, and you know, history is a wonderful thing, and uh, the stories you hear, you know, um, you know, Morris always apparently liked the Four Acres Vineyard here, which is convenient to say that now as I'm as I'm looking at it. But um, you know, you know, we've got um, you know photos, and they'd come over every every year, and he'd taste with them, and um, and then most of our wine was sold to Mount Pleasant or a few a few merchants in Sydney. Um, and then when when Dan died. Um, his his nephew Murray, so um, Avery's son Murray, who was my grandfather. Murray used to look after the cattle because the business wasn't big, you know, a really small business, so you couldn't have everyone working in the winery. So Murray looked after the cattle um, when he came home from the war, and then Dan suddenly, well, not suddenly died. He's pretty old, but he'd been the winemaker for over seventy vintages, so it was a bit like, oh shit, someone's got to go and make the wine now. So um, Murray Murray came in. So Dan died in fifty nine, and. So Murray would have been in his late thirties then, uh, and then he came in and and took over the wine business essentially, um, and that was a pretty exciting time. That's you know sixties into the seventies there, where the wine industry in Australia was was basically taking off, you know, in terms of people drinking table wines, and and Murray was pretty tight with um with Len Evans and, and you know some some pretty important people at the time, and these guys had exposure to the the great wines of the world when when no one else did. Um, they, you know, they were drinking all of the burgundies and doing all this stuff and no one in Australia was doing that at the time or a very small amount of people and that's where the Murray's um, you know that pioneering spirit of his really came to the, the table and his legacy in Australian winemaking he thought well bugger that we're not going to first things first we're not selling any of our wine to anyone else we're going to make it ourselves we're going to market ourselves so Tyrrell's had I think one of the first wine clubs, direct consumer wine clubs, one of the first cellar doors, all of those kinds of things was Murray thinking, well, we could, we should do this ourselves. Um, most importantly, his, his great love of Burgundy. Um, he thought, well, bugger it, you know, Australians can probably make this just as well, if not better. So there was a vineyard nearby, which, which um, Penfold's owned called HVD. And that had the oldest um, Chardonnay, vineyard in the world allegedly on it but uh, more importantly it was a vineyard Murray liked and he knew it was he knew it was Chardonnay and he used to walk through there every day to go to school or ride his horse through there to go to school and Perce McGuigan was running the vineyard Brian's father and um, Murray asked Penfold he said look I know you guys aren't using it for Chardonnay per se it goes into to other blends and other things and basically you guys aren't you don't know what you're sitting on here so can I have some cuttings and I'll plant them at home and I'm going to make this Chardonnay and and uh, take over the world so to speak uh, Penfold said no for a few years. Um, and then Murray had a friend who, who worked there who, who lived in the little house at HVD. And um, somehow some cuttings were liberated um, and Murray got a few thousand cuttings and planted them back here in 1968. 
Um, and in 1971, he released what was Australia's first commercially labelled and sold Chardonnay, 1971, that 47. And in, which is funny, in about four weeks' time, we're going to bottle the 50th that 47. So you've got to remember, no one was fermenting, um, no one was fermenting white wines in New Oak. So the 1973 was the first guy to, to import brand new French oak barrels for white to ferment Chardonnay in. And everyone, everyone thought he was a fucking mad, you know? Like, this is not going to work. No one's going no to drink this. Um, so to think in 1971, there was, you know, one cask, you know, cask number 47 produced. And now, uh, you know, the rest is history in Australia. And to think that, you know, he had the, the vision and foresight and thought, well, I've got this great bit of land. There's this thing that no one's doing, which they need to be doing. Um, and just thought, bugger it, again, got on with it. Um, I think it's just an amazing legacy, which, you know, which I think about all the time. And, um, it's, uh, yeah, it was, you know, amazing, amazing man. And uh, at that point, not long after that, my father, Bruce, has been in the, in the business basically since he was, he was a baby. Um, you know, that when they first opened that cellar door, Bruce talks about on Sundays he had to come work it when he was, you know, 10 years old and take a bit of money and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, it's a, the Hunter was still tiny back then. You know, my father remembers pretty clearly getting electricity, you know, he used to ride a horse to school and, and all those kinds of things. It was, it was small. And then, then, the, then the industry and Tyrrell's kind of went with the industry, um, you know, started growing pretty quickly. And Tyrrell's, you know, in the 80s and 90s was a much different business to what we are today. You know, took advantage of, you know, export markets and we could kind of grow and be quick on our feet and, you know, make wine from, from all parts of Australia and, you know, we had an incredibly successful brand called Long Flat, Long Flat White and Red. They were huge, um, huge uh, brands. And then in the early 2000s, after my grandfather had died, Bruce uh, had realised that probably wasn't the future. You know, this is, um, you know, there's a lot of plantings going on and, you know, his, his vision was that the, you know, the industry was about to change pretty quickly. So we got out of Long Flat, sold that brand and have been on the path really ever since of probably going back to, those original, you know, beginnings of, you know, just working with our great vineyards we have here and, and everyone likes to use the word premiumization, but, um, you know, I think that's kind of where Tyrrell's very much sit now. We're a much different business to what we were. And, and Bruce has always been pretty um, obsessed with, with this great variety Semillon and the uniqueness of it. And, you know, through the eighties and nineties and into the two thousands, it's just been about tying up these great vineyard sites. And I think the Hunter Valley as much as anywhere in the world, um, you see variation in soil type in wine, you know, in such a short space, you know, and we make lots of different single vineyard wines now and they're all different and they're all unique. And that's something that certainly where I see my sister and I, um, you know, my sister Jane pretty well, where we come into the, the table that, um, you know, we've got these amazing resources uh, and it's probably just, you know, authenticity is a word that gets thrown around there a little bit, but um, you know, we, we'd like to, you know, we bottle these wines on their own and we've got these amazing old vineyards. We've now got eight separate bottlings of vineyards from that are over a hundred years old, all on their, all on their own, all on their own roots, <coughs> pre, pre phylloxera material. And I'm actually not sure if there's another winery in the world that has that. I, I don't know. I don't think there is, to be honest. <coughs> so, you know, our, our story now is about telling that story and taking these great wines of the, you know, of ours to the world um, and just continuing to get better and planting vineyards now, thinking about the next, you know, the next 150 years is, is, is our job.
as we see it. I mean, you've had such incredible, like you said, for each of their time, Dan and Murray, such pioneers, such individuals that have really shaped where Tyrrells is today. But take us back a little bit just to, to Bruce Tyrrell. Your father, he's renowned throughout Australia. I'll never forget the first time I met him. I just walked away and I was like, man, that guy can tell a story. He is incredible. But tell us a little bit what it was like growing up with him as a father, both in the winery, um, but also also as, I suppose, your mentor. Yeah. Um, well, as I said, the, the, the industry was a lot different back then. So my that's when export was going crazy. So Bruce used to travel a lot and a lot. you speak to a lot of the guys in that generation. Uh, you know, um, the Wolfies are bit older but um you know ross brown and, and robert hill smith and some of those great you know men of australian wine and they traveled a lot you know so bruce would go away and he'd be gone for two or three months on these export trips and um you know he'd could call in a few orders and he'd you know facts would come in and and mum would usually fly over for the last few weeks and then hang out with him somewhere around the world but um bruce just incredibly hard worker as as murray was so one of the great things i learned with him was you know just the work ethic, whether it's harvest or whether it's the business stuff or the winemaking or, or anything. Um, and I've never, and I know my sister can speak the same here, but we've never really, you know, we're, we're a bit weird or a bit unique, us family. I know a lot of family businesses have got really strict rules around what you need to do and you need to go and work here and you need to do that. Um, but we've never really had that. I've always had a really natural sort of progression into the business. Um, and, you know, once you, you, you know, wine, you, how, how great this industry is, um, once you get in, you're hooked, you know. And once, you know, my first vintage here was, um, my first official vintage uh, was in 2001 when I'd just left school. And it was about three months after Murray had died, my grandfather. So I think that's kind of the way the world's weird and does funny things that there couldn't be three Tyrrells in here at one time. So, uh, so it was like one had to go before another one could come in. Um, but uh, so... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very close with Bruce and we are, uh, you know, and the lines, you know, family businesses are funny things. The lines between, you know, being a dad, being a mentor, being a boss, being a work colleague, they, they all blur, right? Um, so we're forever talking about work, but our work is amazing. And that what we make is this, you know, amazing, beautiful thing that changes and, you know, we'll taste the wine at dinner and, you know, we'll talk about, you know, we might have an old vintage or something. And you're not really talking about the wine. You're talking about the stuff that happened that year, you know, and like, oh, have we stuffed that up. Remember we did this. We should have done that better. And, you know, chances are you've probably fixed that issue by then. But, um, you know, I think we're, we're both pretty obsessed with um, the quality, you know, parameters and how far we can keep pushing them. And, and we push each other, which is important. And the great thing about Bruce um, and, and Murray as well before him is, uh, you know, He's a good listener and he loves having people around him that, you know, be it younger, older, but just to get more info out of and keep learning, which are, which I think is a, a really good thing for me to be working with. Absolutely. I mean, that's an inc incredible um, gift to have to be a good listener. Um, talking about Semillon and Shiraz, being that they are such flagships of the hunter and, and you talking about that legacy that you've now inherited, what's the winemaking approach or your winemaking approach to those two varieties? And has that been consistent over the course of Tyrrell's history? Well, the other great thing about this place is the, is the team we've got here. So um, you've met Spinner, Andrew Spinner's our chief winemaker. Uh, he's, he's been here uh, 42 vintages now. Um, so whilst the winemaking always evolves, um, you know, it, we've got this in, incredible legacy and lineage of, of the people here as well, which are as important as the family. So, you know, our, our, our cellar team, um, 
you know, Spin and, and Mark Richardson, who started in 94. And I've been working with them since, you know, since I was 18. And our two main um, seller hands we've got here, I, I, I've been, I'm still the baby of the group. Um, and I've done 20 vintages here and I'm still the youngest. So I think between the main crew here, it's over, you know, it's well over a hundred vintages in this one site. So you get a pretty innate sense of um, how each other works and, and how the vineyards work. And I think um, whilst winemaking can always evolve and it certainly has, but I think it's, it's getting to know those vineyards and like when to pick them and, and given the certainty. And that's the one skill that kind of, was a bit of a light bulb moment for me probably five or six years ago. Like you've been here 15 years, you think you know it all. And then one year it dawns on you, hang on a second. The decision about when we pick these is the only decision that you need to make really. And really getting a bit more in tune with those blocks. And, you know, it's not about what you do in a wet vintage. It's, well, what did you do in those three wet vintages before with that vineyard, that block, not just Shiraz generally or Semillon generally. So I think, we're pretty in touch with the vineyards, the team. And um, I think that's one of the most important things about Tyrrells. We, um, you know, we don't panic at vintage and panic might be the wrong word, but a lot of people panic because there's a lot of money on the line. There's commercial decisions and we're always, um, you know, willing to wait, willing to, because we want to make these wines that, that really do, you know, speak at the place. And you can't do that if you're not picking them when they're ready. Um, but winemaking wise, I think the style, for us has evolved, you know, particularly Semillon um, without knowing it. I think you see some people change their winemaking style overnight and you can alienate your customers and, and you can alienate, you know, your, your authenticity to a certain extent. You know, our Semillons, you know, if you go back 30 years ago, they were picked really early and it was all about, you know, the more acid they were, the better they were. But I think certainly over time, the wines are a little bit riper, um, because we get this wonderful low pH, but not a really high TA, like not, not a searing high TA. It's kind of not too low, not too high. It's kind of just about right. So the wines have sort of, they've got approachability as, as babies. Um, and we, I think we, you know, picking them a bit riper, we, you know, work a little bit more with, you know, we've got a basket press now that some of the semillon goes through. Um, but, you know, it's just continually, you know, how do we, can we build a bit more texture, a bit more interest? And I know that's a bit of a throwaway line these days, but, um, you know, we're pretty lucky with Semillon that they're, they are, the, these vineyards are pretty amazing. It's not like Chardonnay where you need to do a lot more work. I think sometimes with Semillon, you've either got it or you don't. And by that, I mean the vineyard and we're incredibly lucky that we do have. But I think to, to, to sort of summarise the Semillon thing, they're picked a little bit riper these days. Um, you know, sort of not nine, nine and a half. It's sort of more like, probably closer to 11 most years. And if you go back through history, a lot of the best vintages were those warmer vintage ones. Like I know, um, you know, the 86, that one's this really famous one um, and 95 and, you know, they're, they're warmer years, you know, and they're the ones that weren't picked at nine. Um, so, and then Shiraz, I think has been a, yeah, a, probably the biggest evolution in my time has, has been Shiraz. I think the Hunter, um, you know, as much as any region, uh, you know, sort of 80s into the 90s, probably the wines weren't as good as they should have been. They weren't as clean as they should have been. They are probably trying to be something else. You know, the Hunter had a big influx of winemakers from South Australia. We had the market saying the wine, the, you know, the reds needed to be big, they needed to be oaky. And it didn't really suit us. And I think the, the most important thing for, for Tyrrells is, you know, in the early 2000s, we figured out that we don't have to do that. And, you know, in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, Hunter Shiraz, no one, like it wasn't, very well sought after 
Um, but we stuck to our guns and we said, well, we've got these great blocks and this is what they are. This is what they produce and probably being comfortable with what they are. And I know like some people are forever trying to, to make them what you think they should be rather than what they are. So I think it's us just having that level of comfort with, well, it's okay. You know, these, these blocks have been in the ground for, you know, some vineyards 150 years. Um, let them do the talking, you know, they probably aren't the right to be bottled on their own and not be over oaked and all those things. So we kind of took the approach that, you know, the oak we like more or less is, is large format, 2,500, 2,700 litre. So essentially it's not about the oak at all. It's just a vessel to, to age the wine. So all of our wines are made exactly the same way, um, you know, in, in that large format cask and, and then it is truly about the vineyard, you know, it's not in smaller, you know, the winemaking doesn't come into play as much. Um, you know, we're relatively traditional in the way we do it. You know, we've always used a bit of whole bunch. Like my grandfather, Murray, was a huge proponent of whole bunch fermentation, huge, before it was trendy to talk about that, you know, and uh, you know, we've still got some of his 83 carbonic maceration cabernets, which um, doesn't need to be drunk today, but um, hasn't aged that well, but, you know, I remember when I first started doing vintages here and people would come and work here and say, you have vintage interns and they say, oh, Tyrrell's is using a whole bunch and stalk and, oh, you're so old-fashioned. This is, you know, and they'd have a laugh at us. And then now people come back 20 years later and they say, oh, Tyrrell's is using a whole bunch. You're trying to keep up with all the hipsters. And it's like, oh, fuck, you can't win either way. So I think um, we've always, uh, you know, had a certain way of doing things and, and, and we're comfortable with that, but always just tweaking. I think the main thing probably in my time is a lot of the reds is um, moving to a, to no yeast, so natural fermentation. So we, we like the longer ferment period you get um, and that pre-ferment period. I think the, the wines look a um, bit better now for that. Um, and we've got a new cellar here where we can um, – that's been probably the single biggest thing for me is um, we built a winery now with enough fermentation space that every block of Shiraz we have has the right size fermenter. So by that, I mean most, and for the listeners, most wineries, um, vintage is a, is a logistics game. There's usually not enough fermenters to, to have everything um, off the vine at one time. So when you've got a short window, whether it's climate change or you know just a, a really hot early vintage, you haven't got enough space to ferment it all. So now we said, well, bugger that. We've got these amazing old assets. We talk the talk. Now we've got to bloody walk the walk. So... We built a specific um, cellar. The first one lasted us 150 years. We got our value out of it. But now we've got a, a, a vessel of a particular size for every block of red that we have. So we don't fill any fermenter twice. And that gives us the ability to make the wines, all of the wines, you know, to make them the way we want to and the right way. Incredible. And you're not having to make it, any of those sacrifices about what, what should come off first or what should go in, which is awesome. Correct. You're not picking things early and then taking things off when they're not dry and then, you know, have overripe stuff at the end. We just wanted to remove all of that and just, you know, if we're going to talk about these great vineyards and we're going to, you know, honour them to a certain extent, then you've got to have the, the facility to do it. Yeah. And one of the beauties of, of visiting Tyrrell's, um, if you go up there for a weekend, is actually just seeing that those beautiful old tin sheds, but also the newer parts, it really does showcase the story of where you guys have come from and where you're headed. But you, you talked about vineyard sites. And I just think that anytime you talk about Tyrrell's, you talk about site, just like you said. And um, can you tell us a little bit more just about the sacred sites, just because I, I really think they're, they're so important to you guys? Yeah, yeah, they are. I think that's really Dad really got that that ball rolling, and um, certainly something Jane and I have sort of 
you know, continue to try and evolve and keep going with. But through those those original connections and through the fact that we've just been here a long time, and so the hunter never had phylloxera, um, touch wood, um, but we've had these, yeah, thank you, uh, these, these great old resources of this, um, this vine material on its own roots uh, planted, scattered throughout the hunter. And at Tyrrells, we're really lucky we've got a lot of them. So um, on varying soil types and really, over the years, the single vineyard philosophy at Tyrrells has been like, we always had VAT 1, VAT 47, VAT 9. They were kind of the, for a better term, the estate lines. Um, but every now and then there'd be like a special ferment or a special wine. They'd go, oh, maybe we'll just, you know, do a, a show bottling of that, like in the 80s and 90s, like just for wine shows. Um, and I think 1983, HVD was the first Sam. And then, but over the years, it's kind of evolved to a point where, hang on, we've, you know, we almost took it for granted. We've got these amazing resources here and we're kind of underselling ourselves a bit. So, you know, when you come into Tyrrells, you drive up the driveway, you've got two vineyards there that, you know, they look nice. They, they take a good photo. Um, but, you know, they kind of always went into the swim and one's buried, one's planted in, you know, 1892 and the other's 1879, four acres and, and eight acres. So um, in 2004, there was a, a huge sort of, heated discussion in, in one of the tastings. We had this, this wine. It was um, really light, really delicate, um, almost tasted like a Pinot. And, you know, the argument about can we release this? Should we release it? Oh, it's not really good enough for the market in the sense that it's not this big blockbuster. It's this little, you know, only a few, few pay grades above rosé. And it was light, but it was pretty. And, like, at the end of the day, it's like, who gives a shit what it looks like? It just tastes really good. And it's got you know, really good length and really good, um, you know, this is something about it. And that was um, the 2004 Four Acres Shiraz. So that was the first of those reds that we bottled on its own. And then then it kind of started from there. And we thought, well, okay, well, there's one at Stevens as well, which is this great Stevens Shiraz site, but there's a block within that planted in the 1860s. Okay, well, then we'll do Old Patch and then we've got Jono's. So, um and then this year, another one's just come on board, NVC, which stands for New Vineyard Cuttings, even though it was planned in 1921. It's the new block. Um, so, yeah, we've now got uh, five reds, um, two Semillons and a Chardonnay. So, um, to me, that's part of the story of Australia, you know. I think when, you know, when what I see is when people buy a bottle of Tyrrells, you know, you're buying a piece of Australian wine history. And I think that's so important. And provenance, um, and I think... Is provenance is, is everything to me, but you know, when I think Aussies are a bit modest, we need to talk about this on the you know, in the export markets in Sydney to our own customers and just say, guys, these are so important in not just for the Hunter Valley, but in the world of wine, these are you know, some seriously rare air we're talking about. Um, so that's kind of what I see as, as, as my job to sort of keep pushing that barrel and saying, well, you know, these are amazing. And I think the great thing with single vineyard wines is they might not be as consistent as a blended wine because um, you see you see the vintage variation more, which I kind of like. You know, it's a window into what was happening that year, whether it was the weather, whether it was the fact maybe, you know, you didn't have enough pickers that day and you didn't, you know, there was a fight around something or, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, they're a true window into into what was happening, you know, in a, within a family, within a business, within a region. Like it's, I love all that stuff. It's, it's great. 
Absolutely. It really does. It, it tells the story. Um, in terms of, I mean, you do a lot on the judging circuit, and so you get to see quite a lot of um, different wineries and regions. Can you talk a little bit about the Hunter as a community? Um, there's a lot of influential personalities up there. Who do you kind of bounce your idea, ideas off up there? Um, well, <laughs> one of the, the great things about the Hunter is uh, it's just it's such a collegiate um, atmosphere and everyone's it's one of the few industries where you know all the competitors it's actually in our best interest that we all do well and the region does well you know and everyone's happy to share their issues or come for advice um and certainly there's a lot of people here that have worked in Tyrrells over the years so um being uh the son of the boss they're always happy to tell me what's not good <laughs> over the years <laughs> or, or his set um, over many beers but yeah there's certainly there's a few people here uh, in the hunter that I've always leaned on and, and, you know, see as mentors and, you know, um, Andrew Thomas is a, is a very close friend of mine and, um, he worked at Tyrrell's when he was a, a youngster and, um, you know, many of the trials and tribulations of my career, you know, Tomo sort of helped me through some of those. And we've talked about those over many a late night. Um, Andrew Margan's the same, um, you know, PJ Charteris, uh, you know, so some of those guys, Jim Chatter as well, um, you know, I think there's always the great thing about the hunter is everyone wants to see everyone do well, you know, that's because then we're all doing well. So um, the culture in the hunter, I guess, even back to Len Evans and Murray and Riggsy sort of picked up that torch is it's about fine wine and you need to know what those great wines are to be able to make them. And so even from when I was like 16, 17, 18, my grandfather, my dad were just hammering these great wines on the table and just, making you think about it, making you talk about it. And I think the great thing about the Hunter, even today is, as much as ever, is there's a real sense of, okay, well, we, you need to know the best to, to make the best and everyone pushes pretty hard to that. And that's, you know, we've got the Len Evans tutorial here, which is kind of, and that kind of runs because of the community as much as anything, you know? Um, yeah. So, no, the Hunter's an amazing place. And, you know, I think the, the love of fine wine and, uh, continually trying to to pursue that is is one of the great things yeah and i think you see that i think you see that the hunter is it's a competitive industry because everyone's pushing to be the and be supportive but be the best that they can be because of where they've come from and like you said that their their love of fine wines i mean what i wouldn't have given to be a fly in the wall back in those days when they were drinking incredible burgundy for pennies i mean would be amazing yeah uh my my, yeah, my grandfather's cellar was uh pretty heavy and some of those are those yeah, the things that are somewhat unattainable now. Yeah. Look, it's hard to imagine, I think, um, seeing where Tyrrells will go and, and reaching greater heights than they already have. But it's really clear that Tyrrells is in very good hands. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what's to come. We're just beginning, just beginning. I like, I like that. Um, before we go, though, just to satisfy curiosity, I'm always curious to see what people like drinking. If you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, Chris, what would you be drinking and why? I'm going to be a little bit generic, if that's okay. Um, <laughs> like the, ob the obvious, the, the obvious answer is um, like water, coffee, wine. I'll be a little bit more specific than that. But I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to be a complete homer. But I'm going to just throw out my favourite Tyrrells one. So if you could only drink them for the rest of your life, I've, I've said here, probably around a 15 year old HVD Semillon, because I think that's like that wine, that vineyard is a bit bigger, softer, just pure enjoyment like just out of the fridge, just, you know, wonderful complex wines, but light in structure, full of flavour. About that 15-year-old HVD Sam 
could probably see me out. Um, and then it's a little bit generic, this next one, but just Chardonnay in all its forms. You know, I think Chardonnay, like whether it's within Australia or um, the French stuff or even some of those Americans, you know, time and place, um, it's just so diverse, you know, so thought-provoking, great for conversation. Um, so, yeah, just Chardonnay is great. And then part of the one I think you would probably agree with me on this, um, just great old Australian red. You know, and you see those some of those old, um, you know, whether it's back to the Woodley's treasure chest stuff, you know, the old wind stuff, the old Lindemann stuff from the Hunter. Whenever you hear about people at wine shows, whenever you hear about people at, you know, the Lindemann's tutorial, everyone ends up talking. You have all these fancy DRCs and everything. Everyone always talks about the old Australian bracket. That's what they always talk about. Um, and for me, those old Aussie Reds, you know, they're, they're haunting those wines. They're, um, when they're good, you know, what Australia can do and you show them to international people and they fucking lose their mind, you know. Sorry for swearing. Um, Not at all. It, it, it deserves to. It deserves that, that's for sure. They're life-changing and, and it's just so hard to get your hands on them. <laughs> I know. And, and when I try wines from here that I've, you know, that have got a, that were made, that were bottled at Mount Pleasant and made here, it's like bloody hell, you know, it sort of, it just strikes you with fear, but also with energy, you know, let's get, let's get into it. Let's, how do we, how do we create this? You know, let's, let's do that. And I'm thinking about, you know, the next 50 years, the next hundred years, that's what kind of drives us now. And those great Aussie reds, like can't beat them. They're the best. Absolutely. Well, Chris, it's been such a pleasure learning about Tyrrells and about the legacy, but mostly also getting to know you better. Um, thanks for sharing your thoughts and just spending some time with me today. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, Honoured to be um, the first guest. Oh, I, I'm so thrilled. Thanks so much. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you soon. Cheers to you, mate. Thanks very much. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at Over a Glass at deepintheweeds.com.au.